It's great to have you in worship today. Last spring, I told you about a little, a little dilemma that we faced here in the building. We had a pair of ducks move into the courtyard of the church and make baby ducks. And we wondered, how are we going to get those baby ducks out of the courtyard? And in many ways, it was a metaphor for a concern we had about the life of people in our church, that they come to worship and they stay within the four walls of the church and they have a wonderful time. But then we were encouraging you to get out into the community. And so we were able to move you and the ducks into the larger community. And that's all really good news. But here's some interesting things that have taken place in the last few weeks. The ducks have come back. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. And they've done what they did before. They made more babies, though this time way more. And we're faced with the situation again. Now we have to provide a safe home for these little baby ducks until it's time to send them out again. Last spring, we not only sent the ducks outside, we also sent outside our own pastor, Brian Talty. He was sent on assignment, first of all, to get some Sabbath rest with his family, and then to look into some very concrete, important research projects on behalf of the church. We asked him to be removed, if you will, and leave aside his regular duties in order to take on those special projects. I've got some good news for you today. Pastor Brian's time on assignment is gone, it's over. He's finished with the sabbatical, he's finished with those projects that he's been working on, and he's back with us today, filling the pulpit, bringing us God's thoughts for not only the things he's learned and that he'll bring to us in the months ahead, but also God's thoughts for us today, this day very specifically. And so I'm very glad, trust me, I'm really glad to have back in the building, my friend, your friend, my pastor, your pastor, Pastor Brian Talpin. So uh, with that, it's really my pleasure to say I'm looking forward to what Brian has to bring to us today. And uh, he's not in the front row. Is he in the other auditorium? <laughs> has anyone seen Brian? All right. Not only did I catch a Charizard, but I changed clothes in less than a second. I don't know how I let the video team talk me into these things. Okay. Uh, it is really good to be back with you here today. I think I actually got like four claps out of it because of the many delayed starts of me actually coming out here, which was kind of funny. So five hand claps, five hand claps. All right. Uh, well, it is good to be with you, my friends, here this morning. It's been great catching up in the lobby uh, with many of you and those of you who are now in the East Auditorium. Um, I, I am thankful to get to be back here, uh, as Wayne has said, after a 13-week sabbatical. And um, what's been funny is actually my kids' response. They keep asking, like, Dad, now can we go back to our church? So they're excited that I'm actually going back to work because it means they get to go back to their own church. So it's been nice visiting churches, and that's been a part of it. But there is something about 
being a part of a church, that it's more than just attending for a place. It is a place to belong, and you are my church, and um, I'm thankful for that, that I get to work at the place I'd go to church anyway. So um, I'm excited to be with you here today, and again, just thankful to be part of a church that really, I would say, embodies what the Apostle Paul encourages uh, the young pastor, Timothy, when he says to fan into flame the gift of God that God has given you, the calling of God, which is through you to laying on of hands, and that, that there's a good deposit that's been entrusted to you, the calling of God that we want to guard, and that we're a part of a church that says about our ministry staff, not just in the sabbatical policy, but in everything we do, we want to be a church that um, protects what we have been entrusted with in the way that we handle ministry around here. And frankly, we know in a world where unfortunately too many pastors have flamed out or folded for one reason or another. Um, I'm thankful to be part of a church that uh, helps us together live out what it says like in Ephesians 4.1 to, um, what does it say in Ephesians 4.1? To live a life <laughs> worthy of the calling and again, guarding that good deposit that's uh, within me, that's within you, that is in with us. So excited to be back here with you today. I feel that this is what God has called me to, to the delivering of his word to his people, which we're going to do here today. And so to that end, we are wrapping up a series today entitled God Thoughts, where we've been blessed over the last four weeks to have four guest preachers with us, of which really the intent of their time was to bring a theological thought or a God thought that if they could identify the one thing that they felt God had for our congregation, that they were going to bring that each week. And we've been blessed to have them each week, four guest preachers, and now of which I am the fifth and also feel a bit like a guest today. But um, with that, the one big idea that I want to bring to you, um, our God thought for today, um, I shared it with staff uh, in our staffing the other day that if I had to boil down the sabbatical, my biggest takeaway I would say is this. There are good ships and wood ships, ships that sail the sea, but the best ships are friendships. May they always be. <laughs> All right, so Pastor Josh sent me that. I used that in staff meeting as my big takeaway. They laughed way more than you did because they could, you weren't sure if I was being funny. You're like, that's not good. Okay, that is not my God thought. That Let's not do that in the 11 o'clock service, maybe. I don't know. Okay. My actual God thought for you today, actually, it's not going to sound much better, but it is actually a giant pile of rocks. That is my God thought. But to mine a little bit into God's scripture, I'll help us all understand what that could possibly mean. I know. I'm being asked, does it get any better than this? Let's all hope so. All right, so let's discover what this pile of rocks in our God thought for today is in Joshua chapter 3, the Bible. Uh, I'd invite you to turn in there, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, um, there is one in the pew rack in front of you that you can use today. And uh, as we say around here, that if you don't have a Bible of your own, that is better with you than it is in the pew rack. So we'd invite you to take that as a gift from us to you to have as a Bible of your own. And as you turn there, uh, I'll give you the setting of the story we're looking at. You could say the bigger story of scripture that this small story we're gonna look at today finds itself in. That if you were to zoom out, kind of Google Earth on the Bible, that early in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God chooses a man by the name of Abraham to be uh, the father of a people group, which would one day be called 
Israel. And that God throughout the Old Testament, which is like two thirds of the Bible, he is faithfully working in and through this people group that in order that through their lineage, through their people, Jesus would one day come and in turn faithfully not just bless that people group, but all the people of the world of which we are now a part. And so it's really important that anytime we look at any story in scripture, we're always trying to identify that bigger story is how is God accomplishing this bigger story both through history and our lives in Jesus Christ. And so following the book of Genesis, we come to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where God's people find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And you might be familiar with where this story goes. This is where Moses is called to free his people. And so God sends these 10 plagues to Egypt to display his power in order to deliver his people. And so Moses leads them out of Egypt. God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites flee safely from the Egyptians. Uh, And then from there, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years for various reasons. And then This is where our story picks up today. This is where we're going to pick it up. Joshua is the successor to Moses, and he's going to bring God's people into this land that God has promised them, the promised land of which, again, bigger story, this is going to be the land and the people where Jesus would one day come from. And so with that, we pick up the story with Joshua and God's people. You could say they're in commute to the promised land. They're traveling. Um, it's the text I send my wife when I'm coming home from work, in commute. And so they are in commute to the promised land when they come to an obstacle, an impasse, if you will. And we're going to see that being the Jordan River. And not just any river, but really an impassable Jordan River that's flooding over and they're not sure what to do. So that's the story we're going to pick up. And just to give you a, a picture of what they're up against, this isn't like... Stevens Creek we're talking about. Um, in fact, we have some footage of what the Jordan River looks like at flood stage uh, to give you an idea of what this people group were up against between them and the promised land. So this is where they're at. They're at the foot of this river and they got to figure out what do we do from here. So pick up the story with me. Joshua chapter three, following in verse five. It says, Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went on ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant when you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, go and stand in the river. Can I look at that river one more time? I, go, stand, go stand in that river. Okay, I'm going to need a little more help. Verse 9, we have more help. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. These are the people who are occupying the land that's promised to them in the, right now. To see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And what's important there is that basically that could just say God's presence. That in that time in history, God's presence resided in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, God's presence of all the earth will go into the Jordan River ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. 
So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went on ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage, which we just mentioned, all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and put their feet, and their feet touched the water's edge. So I'm going to take this first step. The water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite over Jericho, over opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Could you imagine witnessing that kind of miracle? I mean, you've got hundreds of thousands of people, an entire nation on a journey that God has called them to, but then calls them would seem to an impasse. And you've got all these people with all their belongings, all their livestock, all their children, and there's, there's no ferry, there's no boats, there's no like pedal boat. There is no way to cross this impasse. But true for both God's people then and true for us, fast forward now, the reality is God does not call his people to something that he will not provide a way to pass when there is an impasse. God always makes a way. And so that's what we see happening. Verse 13 again. It says, as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord. And I love that little byline that comes after it. You know, uh, the Lord of all the earth. You know, the one who created the earth. The one who created the laws of gravity. The one who put the laws of physics in place and has the same power not only to create them but to manipulate those same laws as he sees fit for his purposes. And I know this is one of those miracles that people, you know, at the skeptic in the room kind of raises an eyebrow saying, you know, this, this is where I get hung up. But it's very interesting, actually, historically, when it comes to the Jordan River damming up, this has actually happened a number of times in the last couple of hundred years uh, that has been recorded. In fact, most interestingly enough, in 1927, the, uh, it, it completely dammed up in the same spot that it did verse 16 because there's actually a fault line that runs along the Jordan River between the African and Arabian uh, tectonic plates. And so where this shift occurs, there was an earthquake in 1927 and these cliffs that are about 150 feet above the, what are now the ruins of Adam actually gave way. And in 1927, the uh, river actually dammed up at that place for 21 hours, leaving, we could say, dry ground. And so... It's interesting. Some people believe maybe that is the way that God chose to deliver his people through that miracle. But really, either way, God's sovereignty over nature, whether it was a direct miracle by his hand or maybe you could say an indirect miracle by the utilization of an earthquake, either way, God's sovereignty, verse 15, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan with their feet touching the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing and it piled up in a heap a great distance away at that town called Adam. And so it's a cool story. It's a cool story of a miracle of God, of God finding a way for his people to pass that impasse. Um, but what is the point for the story for us today? What does it have to do with us? Not many of us are having trouble crossing Stevens Creek or um, the lake here. We've got bridges and all these things. So what is the point of the story for us? Well, I would make the case that the point of this story, and, and really, frankly, the point of every story in Scripture and even further than that, that if we're paying attention, the point of every story of our lives, and this is our God thought for today, that the point of these stories, 
both in scripture and our lives, is to display God's faithfulness. That the point of this story, the point of the stories of scripture and the point of every story of our lives is to display and for us to encounter and catch God's faithfulness to us. That we serve a God who is always faithful. And again, nothing that we've earned, but by his grace. He is faithful to his people. And while this God thought isn't new information necessarily, it's like, okay, I should know that God is faithful. It is something that we have to be intentional to make new every morning, every day, that we have to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us and the newness of this reality so that we can live in it each day. In fact, Lamentations 3 says it this way, and this is actually written to God's people in the midst of great suffering where it would have been the easiest to dismiss that God is in any way faithful to them. The prophet writes this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed by the great struggle, by impasses, by challenges, by suffering. We are not consumed, but instead, his compassions, they never fail. They are new. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so that is our God thought for today. It's okay to clap for God's word being true. That's good. I'll take that. It's good. It's hard. I know it's not the kind of church we are, but we kind of Get excited about what God's word says, and that's okay. And that's a real good thing. So God's faithfulness. And so this is the God thought for today. If you wanted to sum it up into one word, something's like, okay, if I had to write it down, this is it. Be reminded. Be reminded. Put your faith in God's faithfulness. That is the God thought that we want to unpack today, that we need to be reminded to put our faith in God's faithfulness. And by that, what it means is we each day, each morning, we, you could say, face a faith test. We have a faith test with the challenges and the opportunities that are going to come at us that day to either choose to put our faith functionally in God's faithfulness or we're going to choose functionally to put our faith and our trust in something else, in a lesser thing other than God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. That when we choose to put our faith and our trust in something lesser than God and make it our ultimate area of trust, that that is idolatry. We are idolizing something other than God. Now, when it comes to the circumstances that each of us face in our lives, when it comes to the things we are struggling with or up against or maybe tempted to put our trust in as, instead of God, those circumstances are wide, they're varied, they're multiplied exponentially even by the number of people in this room. But we could boil it down, and we will, to say categorically there are areas within each of our lives that we all can relate to, that we all have, that we face the challenge, the faith test, to put God's um, faithfulness as the place of our faith or lesser things of this world. And here are these areas. We, are, we have a faith test. Every time when we take a look and have a perspective on our future, when we look at our present, and we look at our past, that in our lives we need to be reminded to be uh, people of faith in God's faithfulness when it comes to our future, our present, and our past. And so to help you with that, tonight each of you will be visited by three ghosts. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Actually, God's word helps a little bit more than that. Okay, first, the future. When it comes to the future, as we look to the future, we always have the faith test to put our trust in God's faithfulness for what is to come or to put our faith and our trust in worry and anxiety. 
that we have the faith test when it comes to our future to either put our faith in God's faithfulness or to put our faith in worry and anxiety. Now, as you hear that, you might say, well, you know, okay, I'll admit I'm a worrier. That's just my personality, but I would never say I put my faith in worry. However, the reality is when we choose to remain, when worry rears its ugly head and anxiety rears its ugly head, would we choose to remain and dive into that over faith? Well, then we are functionally putting our trust, our hope, our energy into that worry and that anxiety. We're feeding that rather than directing that towards God's faithfulness. Because that's ultimately what worry is. It is holding up a hopeless future instead of the hope of the future that is the reality of God's faithfulness to us. To illustrate how I think this is very prevalent in our time right now, I was sharing this understanding with a friend of mine over email, actually someone within the congregation, um, about how worry and anxiety uh, is an idol, you could say, something we put our trust in rather than God. And he was talking about how that is revealed most clearly in our current American political state. And he wrote this in the email. He said, American politics for us is an excellent example of us forsaking trust in God because... God does not reliably do what we want him to do the way that we want him to do it. And so instead, we expect our political leaders in the omnipotence we presume upon them to be able to shape our world as we wish. Hence, our violent and vitriolic reaction when they fail to do so. Fine, we say, we'll just fire you like we fired God. Now, there's a lot in that quote that could be unpacked. But a response to that reality. Um, actually, I really appreciate what our friends over at the GT Church did. Um, I don't know if it was four years ago or eight years ago with the presidential election, but uh, with all the campaign signs around, you might recall seeing some campaign signs that said, Jesus Christ for everlasting change. Yeah. And so that is the difference. And in fact, you know, whether it's that that's got your attention or something else about the future. Jesus tells us, instructs us, reminds us, do not worry, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't worry about your life, since who by worrying can add a single hour to your life? In fact, it's interesting. Research actually reveals that the opposite is true, that not only can you not add an hour to your life with worry and anxiety and the stress that comes with it, but not only do you reduce the quality of life, but actually the quantity of life can be reduced by the wear and tear on your body as a result of worry, stress, and anxiety. And so Jesus says appropriately, who of you by worrying can actually add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Instead, Jesus says, God's faithfulness Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Be obedient, following his ways. And all these things that we worry about will be given to you as well. So therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so God's word reminds us that when it comes to the future, we can run from anxiety and run from worry by putting our faith in God's faithfulness, by pursuing God on the inverse, okay? So that's how we handle our future. Second, when it comes to our present circumstances, our current situation, uh, our quote, as Jesus said, the today with enough trouble of its own, um, as Jesus just said, he says, when it comes to our faith test of the present, our option is to either, again, put our faith in God's faithfulness or choose anger and bitterness. 
that our choice is God's faithfulness in our present circumstances or present anger and bitterness. Pastor Timothy Keller uh, says it this way and with this example. He says, anger and bitterness is idolatry mapped onto the present. Anger becomes pathologically intensified when someone or something comes between me and something that is of my ultimate value, that which I idolize above God. For example, suppose my career is the measure of my worth as a person and someone at work is harming it. Well, I won't just become angry. I will be so deeply bitter and capable of doing things to this person that I may blow up my own career more thoroughly than that person ever could have. And I've had enough conversations to know that there's those of you who have been there or are there. And so for you, if your present circumstances, maybe it is a work stress or tension where this has got your attention, but maybe it's not that. Maybe for you, it's a present health struggle that has all of your bandwidth. Or maybe it's a relationship, an important relationship that isn't going the way that you had hoped it would. Whatever your present dissatisfaction, however you'd fill in that blank, when it comes to whatever you are facing right now, do not be imprisoned. Do not be imprisoned behind the bars of anger and bitterness regarding your present circumstance, but instead experience the very real freedom, the peace that transcends our understanding, Jesus says. It's an overflow of what he gives us by his grace, by placing your faith in God's faithfulness. Okay? So we want to place our faith in God's faithfulness every morning when it comes to what we're looking at the future, when it comes to what we're dealing with in the present, and then lastly, the third area, and this could be a whole sermon series in and of itself, when it comes to our past, that we are always up against guilt and shame rather than God's faithfulness when it comes to looking at our past. Really, that is what guilt and shame is. It is idolatry projected onto the past, almost like a bad movie, like a bad rerun of our lives. Guilt and shame is idolatry projected onto the past. And listen clearly. This is where God's faithfulness is at its best. That in a people group, that God made a way to make sure they could get to this promised land so that in this land one day would come Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who would not just come and live, but die for the forgiveness of our sin and the guilt and the shame that is all wrapped into that, that we are free from that, that it says in Psalm 103, 12, that as far as the east is from the west, he has forgiven us our transgressions. God says, come now, let us settle this matter in Isaiah 118. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. That is good news. That is the gospel. The word literally means good news that your past sins, your past shame, and the guilt that goes with it are also wiped away. They are forgiven. And again, in church, that's something that we almost all know theologically and cognitively, but need to be reminded of so that we might press into it and know it personally. That we might know personally that the same grace that has forgiven us of our sin in the eyes of God is the same grace that's available to you to forgive yourself. To forgive yourself because Romans 8, 1 is true. There is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. 
And so this is the good news. This is the opportunity we have when it comes to our past, present, and future with God's faithfulness versus leaving ourselves in the idolatry, in trusting in worry and anxiety, anger and bitterness, guilt and shame. And there's not one among us who is not up against one of these things or about to be up against one of these things, maybe two of them or all three in our lives because this is the life, this is the world we live in. And so what is our response? How do we keep this before us? Because again, we can sit here all sitting in pews facing the same direction and agree, yes, this is true, but then we have to actually wake up every morning and be reminded and get reminded that this is true. And so how do we keep this before us? How do we actually and actively remember to put our faith in God's faithfulness? And thus, my giant pile of God thought rocks. Yes. Uh, now, I don't know. You shouldn't be clapping because you don't know what it's about yet, but that's okay. I'll take it. Maybe you know the story. And if you don't know the story, we're going to pick it up in Joshua chapter 4 and understand how a pile of rocks is the epitome of God's faithfulness as we finish out uh, the Israelite story under Joshua as they cross the Jordan River. Okay, so pick up your Bibles again. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. We'll wrap this up. It says, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan, where there's now dry ground, and each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. That in the future, when your children ask you, what is this big pile of rocks about? What do these stones mean? What are they about? Verse 7, tell them. Tell them of God's faithfulness. Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark, the presence of God, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial. They are to be a physical and visible reminder of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel forever. So verse 8. The Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua and they carried them over to the place where they had camp where they put them down. Joshua then set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood and there they are to this day. And so God through Joshua says, be reminded 12 stones, let one stone for each tribe of Israel that I have made away, shown my faithfulness to this promised land. Let this be a memorial, a reminder that you would not forget God's faithfulness by always looking to remember God's faithfulness from that miraculous day for your generation and for the generations to come. And so the challenge then for us in our lives here thousands of years later is where are the stones set up in your life? Where are the memorials of God's faithfulness set up around you to remind you of God's faithfulness when it comes to your past, when it comes to the future, and when it comes to what you're facing in the present? Well, you could make the case that one of those stones is right here, right now. 
that by weekly gathering together for worship, not monthly, not every few months, but by the weekly regular reminder of being here, worshiping God for who he is and his faithfulness, this is together a memorial. This is a reminder. This is a figurative stone to remind us of who God is and his faithfulness to us. If you're part of a Grow Together small group, that is a group of people who are very actively reminding one another of God's faithfulness through their faithfulness to one another in that group and through the content of that group and praying for one another that God is faithful to one another. Or if you serve, and, and you should, as this, part, like, this is the mission of our church, to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ by growing together and serving together. And so if you serve, your area of service, you are part of a ministry that is perpetuating the story of God's faithfulness to someone else. That if you're serving in children's ministry, you are carrying the story of God's faithfulness. That if you are greeting people as they walk in the door as part of the hospitality team, making sure that first experience when they walk into church is one that represents the goodness of God just in the way that they're greeted. Even the tech team right now who is making sure that there are no obstacles or obtrusions and being able to clearly communicate God's word and his faithfulness to you. All of these things as you serve are representations of God's faithfulness and carrying that. They are stones for who he is um, and to be reminded of. Um, In your own personal time, when you read God's word, you've got to be in God's word regularly where we read these stories of God's faithfulness. And of course, through prayer, where we are reminded in prayer, both in talking to and hearing from God. His faithfulness. So these are all, you could say, figurative stones that we need to be as a part of our lives as the church of God. Um, but then beyond that, we see that God does make the case through Joshua that not just figurative stones, but it actually is a good idea to have, it would seem, a legitimate physical pile of rocks in our life to remind us of who God is. And so going off that idea, actually, funny, um, a number of years ago, I started actually saving rocks Um, as like personal souvenirs from places that I visited. Uh, And in fact, I got really cheap. Instead of buying cheap plastic toys with like the city's name on it for my kids when I came home, I just got like ultimate cheapskate and then just started bringing them home like rocks from wherever I would visit. Um, And apparently through the mode of souveniring, I have somehow convinced my children that rocks have some value that can be turned for profit. Um... Here is a picture of our eight-year-old son, Rock Stand, that is on display at the end of our driveway. Um, Yeah, I'll be honest, sales are down. (laughs) Apparently not a huge market in our cul-de-sac for new or old rocks. Uh, But uh, that's all right, I don't want to crush his entrepreneurial spirit. We're hanging in there. We're kind of thinking maybe we can get some of the momentum from the pet rock, and we're going to see where the numbers are at after Christmas. But... Really, I, I personally, I save these rocks uh, as souvenirs from places where I've been that God has had an impact on my life. And so here's a few, not these huge ones, but these little ones. Um, this rock comes from uh, a little campground here in the area, um, just near Shelbyville called uh, Eagle Creek. And uh, this is from a one-on-one camping trip with my oldest daughter. And this represents our commitment as parents to uh, take each of our children on one-on-one trips every couple of years to intersect with them and say, okay, where is God at work in their lives? Have spiritual conversations relative to their age about what God is up to. And so this is a rock from, uh, from that camping trip, from one of the early ones. Uh, this rock is from Ireland. Uh, had the privilege a number of years ago to spend uh, several days in a Benedictine monastery, which was an amazing experience that God did some cool things. And then this rock is from a retreat center in Colorado um, from about 10 years ago. It's where all the rock collecting started, uh, where I was in the, the midst and thankfully 
in that week in January in 2006, uh, the conclusion of a, of a two-year bout with depression where God very clearly swooped down and rescued me from, from some major stuff that um, I'm very thankful actually to. It was a class, a seminary class I was taking under uh, Professor Don Green, now uh, president of Lincoln Christian University, who brought us God's word last week. And so eternally grateful for him and his work and again, so I have these, these little stones all in a glass uh, within eyesight of my desk where I sit each day. Again, as not just figurative, but physical reminders of God's faithfulness to me that is new every morning and new every day. And so with that, I wanted to make sure that um, when in your life, that when, you know, bitterness or anger, guilt, anxiety, where all these things rear their ugly head, um, that you too could be reminded of this message of Joshua chapter three. And so I went all out for you all on my sabbatical and I brought back each of you, every single one of you, a souvenir. Um, And so as you leave today, there's gonna be a rock in some baskets. And I invite you to take a rock as, again, a reminder, not that that rock is anything special to you necessarily, but as a reminder of God's faithfulness to you. And it was so funny. I was, <laughs> this past week, I was talking to Wayne. I was like, think, we're thinking, because when Wayne came back from sabbatical, he went and visited Israel and he brought back for the whole congregation. Everyone got an individualized, handmade, wooden communion cup from Israel. What has Brian been back? Gravel from Menards. <laughs> is what you're getting today. And so, so each of you take a rock, uh, take a piece of gravel from Menards, and just as Joshua set up these stones as a reminder of God's faithfulness, be mindful. What are the figurative? And, you know, maybe you can even start your own rock collection and collecting places of representation of where God has been faithful that you might declare uh, when it comes to the guilt of the past, the bitterness of the present, or worry about the future, when it rears its ugly head, you declare new every morning, Great is your faithfulness, the faithfulness of our God. I could get into this, Wayne. I've visited some churches. I like, I mean, we could make a shift because I've visited some churches where there's some clapping and a lot of noise. I like the feedback. This is good. Let's, can we start a clapping, can we be a clapping church? (laughs) I'll take it. Okay. Because that's who we're clapping for, what the Lord is doing. So. May you, as you go, and, you, and we're not leaving yet, we're not done, but um, uh, let me do this. Let me pray for us in this, in God's faithfulness, and again, that you might start in your life the figurative and the physical rocks. And if you need some rocks, I know a place you can get a great deal at the end of our driveway, um, <laughs> to be reminded of God's faithfulness every day, new every morning. And so let me pray for us in this. Father, in our attempts to want to be faithful and obedient, uh, seeking first your kingdom, um, we are thankful that even in our pursuit of that, we know we are imperfect in our faithfulness to you, but we are so thankful with that, that there is no contingency upon our inability to be faithful to you that affects your perfect faithfulness to us. And so may we be reminded of that grace, that gift that's beyond the ways that our world works of transactional understandings, that you have a grace that supersedes even our shortcomings and our failings. And God, we confess we have idolized and and spinned our wheels, uh, spun our wheels uh, in anxiety and worry and guilt and shame and bitterness and anger. God, we want to lay that aside. We want to lay that down and we surrender that to you as we're reminded 
of your faithfulness here today. May we be reminded by the prompting of physical, figurative, and most importantly, the reality of your Holy Spirit each morning we ask on everyone here this day. In Jesus' name, amen.